So far, we've seen a number of keys to correctly interpreting Bible prophecy. Key one is the foundational principle, interpret prophecy literally. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Key two was it understanding the dispensations, that there are distinctive periods of time and distinctive peoples of God involved in the outworking of God's purposes. Key three concerns one of these special periods of time called the Messianic Kingdom or Millennium, because Revelation 20 tells us it will last a thousand years. Israel has always looked forward to this golden age when the Messiah, the son of David, will rule on the earth with Israel as the chief nation. All the prophets look forward to it, which is why Peter in Acts 3.21 called it the times of restoration of all things spoken of by all the prophets. As well as correcting Israel for her sins and prophesying upcoming events, the prophets also looked beyond these to a glorious future age of peace on the earth under the personal rule of the Messiah. The Jews took these prophecies literally, and so should we. Otherwise, there's nothing to stop you making the prophecies mean whatever you want. So when Jesus returns, he will establish the messianic kingdom on earth. The millennium is the climax of history, for all history is moving towards this time when God will literally and completely fulfill all his promises and covenants to Abraham and David. To understand prophecy, we need to know that all history has been flowing like a river towards this destination, the millennial sea. Just as understanding creation is essential because it's the origin of all history, so understanding the millennial kingdom is essential because it's the climax of all history. Thus, our view on the millennium is a touchstone for how we read and understand all prophecy. What we believe about it governs our whole viewpoint of prophecy. Now all agree that taking a literal approach to prophecy leads to a pre-millennial view. That is, Jesus will return before the millennium. Thus, Jesus will personally establish his messianic kingdom on earth and literally reign on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years in fulfillment of all the prophets. The fourth key to unlocking Bible prophecy is another consequence of literal interpretation, and that's maintaining a clear distinction between Israel and the church as two distinct elect peoples of God. It's not Israel or the church, but both. If we confuse these two, we will be in confusion. Thus, whatever purposes, plans and promises God has for the church, this does not nullify his plans and purposes and promises for the people and nation of Israel. Although the church has come into all the blessings of the new covenant through her union with Christ, this does not contradict the fact that God will also bring the whole nation of Israel into the new covenant. As Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 declares, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not have to teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Having said that, the new covenant promises of blessing, also called the blessing of Abraham, also belong to the church because we are in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. 
For Paul says in Galatians 3.14 that Christ died for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Like Ruth and Naomi, the destinies of the church in Israel are intertwined. Therefore, we have seen a parallel restoration of God's two covenant peoples, the church in Israel, over the last hundred years. For example, at the first Zionist Congress in 1897, the vision for the Jewish state was established, leading to increased Jewish immigration to the land. This coincided with the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit in the church. Then, when Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948, there was a great restoration of the gifts of healing in the healing revival. Then, the recapture of Jerusalem in 1967 took place, just as the explosion of the charismatic movement took place throughout the whole church world. Also, according to Ezekiel 38, a future worldwide revival will soon take place in connection with a dramatic intervention of God to save Israel. The fifth key to prophecy is understanding the two streams of messianic prophecy, the sufferings, then the glory. The Messiah would first come in humility to suffer and die for our salvation, and then he would come in power and glory to reign on earth. The time period between his two comings depended on Israel's response to him. The sixth and seventh keys come from studying the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ in the Gospels. The sixth key is that when Jesus came the first time, he not only came as the suffering saviour to die for our sins, but he also came to offer the messianic kingdom to Israel in order to fulfil all of God's promises to Israel. Having established the new covenant in his blood, he had laid the spiritual foundation for his messianic kingdom. And now all that was required was for the nation of Israel to receive him as saviour and king. If the leaders of Israel had received him, then he could and he would have established his kingdom right then. However, Israel as a nation rejected the king and his kingdom, and as a result the kingdom was postponed. This is the seventh key, the postponement of the kingdom. Instead of establishing the messianic kingdom through Israel, God brought in the church age, with its emphasis of salvation going to the Gentiles. Now, delay is not denial, and God must still fulfill his promises to Israel of establishing the messianic kingdom. However, this will not happen until God has fulfilled his purposes for the church age. This brings us to the eighth key, the mystery of the church. In his omniscience, God knew Israel would not accept the Messiah and his kingdom, and so he had always planned to bring in the church age. However, God had to keep the church age a secret, because had he revealed what would happen in advance, it would have violated Israel's free will. They wouldn't have had a genuine choice to accept or reject, if God had revealed their decision in advance. So God had to keep Israel's official rejection of the Messiah and the resulting church age as a mystery. So, although the Old Testament revealed the sufferings of the Messiah in his first coming and the glories and kingdom of the Messiah in his second coming, it did not reveal that there would be a church age between these two comings. Thus, the church age, from Pentecost to the rapture, was a mystery hidden in God. Last time we saw that Jesus began to reveal this mystery through parables in Matthew 13, after it became clear that the leaders of Israel were rejecting him. In these parables, he revealed that the form of God's kingdom in the coming age would be very different from the promised messianic kingdom. He pointed out that the revelation of the mystery kingdom was new revelation, unknown to the prophets before them. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus concluded with a final parable, the teacher of new and old things, and it gives us our example of how to handle the prophetic scriptures. In verse 52, it, Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The treasure is the word of God, which contains old and new truths. The teacher is to bring forth both the truth of the Old Testament concerning the messianic kingdom and the new truth concerning the mystery of the church age. We must hold them both together as true. The new does not replace the old. While Israel just holds to the old, most of the church world just holds to the new, ignoring the old. But we need both, and a balanced teacher holds forth the whole word of God. Yes, God has instituted the church age, but he will also set up his kingdom on the earth. So, Jesus was saying, although I'm giving you new information here about the mystery, I'm not negating what God has already revealed about the messianic kingdom. You have to hold and bring forth both of these truths together. The word mystery was used in connection with secret societies, which claim to have special knowledge only revealed to their members. So a mystery is something known only by those on the inside circle, but hidden from the rest. Until Matthew 13, this mystery was hidden within the triune Godhead. Even the angels didn't know anything about it. But now all church-age believers have been welcomed into the fellowship of this mystery because this divine secret is now revealed in the New Testament. Although Jesus began the revelation of the mystery, it was given to the apostles, especially Paul, to complete it. In John 16:12, Jesus said to the apostles, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Thus Jesus predicted there was to be more revelation concerning the mystery that would be given through the spirit after his death and resurrection. Much of Paul's teaching was the revelation of this mystery. He understood this new revelation of the church-age truth more than anyone. In Romans 16, Paul said, God is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began and now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures, that is, of the New Testament, made known to all nations. He also talks about the mystery of the church in Colossians chapter 1, saying, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill, that is to complete, the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from previous ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. He's claiming that the word of God was not yet complete, and it was given to him to add to the word by giving further revelation of the mystery in order to bring it to fullness. He continues in Colossians 1, saying, To whom, that is, the New Testament saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Part of the mystery is that Gentiles are included equally with Jews in all the blessings of the new covenant in Christ, for we're now all one in Christ, and Christ is in us, and together we form the body of Christ. This was a hard thing for the Jews to accept, for up to now the covenants belonged to Israel, and Gentiles were excluded. So to belong to God's people, a Gentile had to become a Jew and be circumcised. The new revelation was that God was going to form a body of people distinct from Israel that was something new called the new man.
the body of Christ, of which Jews and Gentiles would equally be members. A Gentile would no longer have to become a Jew to partake, for all, both Jew and Gentile, would be one in Christ. It took a bit of time for the early Jewish church to accept this new idea, but the sovereign outpouring of the Spirit on the Gentiles in Acts 10 was decisive. Peter referred to this in the first church council in Acts 15 to show that God was now accepting Gentiles on an equal basis to the Jews. The classic passage on the mystery is in Ephesians 3, where Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. This is when he describes the one new man in Ephesians 2. Paul continues and saying, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So we don't have to become Jewish to be in the new covenant. To us now, that's obvious. But at the time it was radical and new. It wasn't predicted in the Old Testament because it was part of the mystery hidden in God during the previous ages as God's secret. In Ephesians 3, Paul continues, To me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Anything called a mystery in the New Testament is something not previously revealed, but is now made known. The heart of this mystery is the new revelation about the church and the church age. The mystery is not the salvation of Gentiles, which happens in every age, but that there would be a body of people distinct from Israel in union with and indwelt by Christ. That's us in Christ and Christ in us. And this body was called the church, possessing every new covenant blessing where Jew and Gentile have an equal place in one body. The mystery was not Messiah's death, resurrection and ascension, for this was already revealed in the Old Testament. But it was that after his resurrection, Israel would be hardened and cut off as God's representative for a time due to her unbelief. And that instead, a new body of Jews and Gentiles would be formed in Christ, which would represent God for this present age instead of Israel, and be entrusted with the preservation and propagation of his word. Romans 11.25 talks about the first aspect of this mystery, that Israel would be cut off from the place of favour as God's representative for this age. Saying, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The second aspect of the mystery is the formation of the body of Christ consisting of both Jews and Gentiles called the new man. That's in Ephesians 2.15. Thus, it is something different from Israel. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes Christ's sacrificial love for his body, the church, comparing it to the love of a husband for his bride. He concludes by saying in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The third aspect of this mystery is that the church is God's anointed representative in the earth and witness for this age. 
We see this in Revelation 1.20, where the risen Christ appears standing in the midst of seven lampstands saying, the mystery of the seven golden lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Here he describes the churches as his lampstands, which he is inspecting. The job of a lampstand is to lift up and hold forth the light so that it shines as much as possible. Thus the main ministry of the church is to be a witness of Christ, proclaiming his word, shining his light to the world. The seven letters show how he assesses the seven churches and their pastors in how they fulfill this commission. This was part of the mystery because in the Old Testament it was Israel who was God's chosen witness. So part of the mystery is that the church is now the witness of Christ, not Israel. But when the church is raptured, then the anointing will return to Israel as God's representative and witness in the earth. This is why 144,000 Jews are anointed to spearhead the evangelism in the tribulation. The fourth aspect of the mystery is the rapture of the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I now tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. The second coming, when the righteous dead will be resurrected, is not part of the mystery. For this was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture, though, where the bodies of living believers will be changed into immortal bodies without even suffering death, that was a new revelation. This was not revealed in the Old Testament, where the expectation was that the believers who are alive on earth at Messiah's return will populate the messianic kingdom on earth. Thus the rapture of the living church-age saints, along with the resurrection of the dead church-age saints, was a new revelation. When Paul described the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, he pointed out that the Lord Jesus had previously spoken about this event, claiming that what he had said was according to the word or the teaching of the Lord. That is, he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that is, according to the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus talked about the rapture in two places. First, in Matthew 24, he said, Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Then in John 14, he said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. So anything prophesied in the Old Testament such as Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, second coming, messianic kingdom, these are not part of the mystery, but the church age is the mystery. From Israel's point of view, the church age is a parenthesis in God's purposes for Israel, a postponement of the fulfillment of God's promises to her. Some object to this idea, thinking it downgrades the church, it makes the church an afterthought. However, God wasn't taken by surprise by Israel's rejection. In fact, the church age was always in God's eternal plan and purpose. It's just that God had to keep it as his secret. But notice it was his secret from the foundation of the world. So it was part of his eternal plan. But it's in the temporal outworking of God's plan for Israel that the church age is a parenthesis.
Knowing that the church was a mystery gives us another key to understand Old Testament prophecy, which is our ninth key, the key of prophetic gaps. When you read the Old Testament prophets, you'll often find that they're describing events at the first coming of Christ, and then suddenly they jump 2,000 years to events around his second coming. Why do they jump over the church age as if it didn't exist? The reason is, of course, that it was a mystery, a divine secret. God had hidden it from them. Just as when we look at two mountains, one behind the other, we don't see a valley in between. So they didn't see the church age. They didn't know they were jumping across a gap of 2,000 years from Christ's first coming to his second coming. So their prophecies flowed as if the events of the second coming happened soon after the events of the first coming, whereas we know they jumped 2,000 years over the mystery age. These gaps wonderfully illustrate the fact that in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery hidden in God. We will now look at some examples of this pattern. Notice there's always a theme that bridges the gap and connects the events of the first and the second coming. The classic example of a prophetic gap is in Isaiah 61, which Jesus quoted when he preached the gospel in Nazareth. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. Then, halfway through Isaiah 61 verse 2, it jumps 2,000 years to the day of judgment when Christ returns, saying, And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus quoted this scripture in Luke 4, claiming that it was fulfilled by him right then, saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. However, notice that he stopped re his reading halfway through verse 2, after saying to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He did not read the next line about the day of vengeance, because he would not be fulfilling that until his second coming. So he couldn't have said, Today this is fulfilled. So there's a prophetic gap halfway through Isaiah 61 verse 2. Now verse 3 describes the spiritual blessings Israel will enjoy in the Messianic age through the new covenant when she lives in the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. But these blessings are now available for us in Christ for it is now the acceptable year of the Lord for the church. Another well-known prophetic gap is in Isaiah 9 verse 6 and 7. The prophecy starts with the first coming of Christ. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, that's Miracle Worker, Counselor or Teacher, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Source of Everlasting Life, and Prince of Peace. Then in verse 7, the prophecy jumps to his second coming, describing his messianic kingdom, saying, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David. This is an earthly throne in Jerusalem. And over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. This verse will only be fulfilled at his second coming. So the prophecy has jumped 2,000 years. This is reflected in Gabriel's promise to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. Then the prophecy jumps. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there'll be no end. Another example is Micah 5. Verse 1 says, With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. That was fulfilled at the crucifixion. Verse 2 says, describes his birth. 
But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Verse 3 then says, therefore he will give them up. This is a mysterious saying, but we can now understand it. God will give Israel up because her leaders rejected him, striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Then the prophecy jumps over the church age to the tribulation. Let's see this by reading the rest of verse 3. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So Israel will be given up for a time, but not forever. This is talking about the tribulation, which is the time of labor pains before the birth of the messianic kingdom on earth. During the tribulation, Israel will return to the Lord. As the end of verse 3 says, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Then verse 4 describes the millennium. And he, the Messiah, shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Another classic prophetic gap is Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this was fulfilled, of course, by Jesus in his first coming. But then it immediately jumps to the second coming with no hint that there was 2,000 years in between. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There are many more examples of prophecies that jump over the mystery age, which God kept hidden, and we will come across more of them later in the course, such as the branch of Isaiah 11, and the two days of Hosea 5 and 6, and Daniel's 70 weeks. Understanding this key of prophetic gaps will open up many prophecies to your understanding, making your study of Bible prophecy all the more exciting.